Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to author and practising barrister Imran Mahmood. Imran's debut novel, You Don't Know Me, was chosen as a BBC Radio 2 book club choice when it was published in 2017. It was also long-listed for the Theakston Crime Novel of the Year and the Crime Writers Association Gold Awards. A TV adaptation of the book was released on Netflix at the end of last year. Imran recently had a short story included in a crime anthology called The Perfect Crime, alongside authors such as Vaseem Khan and Walter Mosley. His latest book, I Know What I Saw, was published in June last year and is out in paperback on the 28th of April. Imran, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely lovely to have you on the podcast today. As I do with all my guests, I'm going to start off by going back to your childhood, if you don't mind. I understand you were born and raised in Liverpool. What was life like for you? Well, Liverpool, uh, because I, I was born in 1969, and Liverpool in this kind of late 60s and the 70s was a different place from the place it is now. What I remember most about that time, really even into the early 80s, that Liverpool was a place which was full of tension. There was quite high unemployment at the time. I remember that there were kind of racial tensions were quite high. There were clashes with the police going on. We had the Toxteth riots in, I think, 1981. So there was a lot going on, and that was kind of kind of my enduring memory of the place was that Liverpool felt like a character with two personalities. So on the one hand, you, you know, the people that you would meet would be gloriously friendly and entertaining and funny and full of compassion on the one hand, or, you know, with the one face, and with the other, you know, almost the opposite, violent, racist, aggressive, you know, and you had those two Liverpools coexisting side by side at the time. And it was a difficult place. It was very much for me uh, marked by its kind of working class identity and its working class credentials. And I grew up in a working class household. I went to a state school where all of the pupils were from working class backgrounds. And so, you know, very much my kind of immediate environment was working class. Those are the people, the working class people that I mixed with and identified with. And it seemed to be the case that that Liverpool was very much represented by the working classes. So yeah, that's how I remember it. I remember it being a time of, I suppose, poverty. Um, There was quite a lot of poverty around. I remember, you know, my father was working in factories when he could and he was being laid off when he couldn't. And you know, we were doing our best to get by. And then, and then something miraculous happened in the 80s where the kind of world turned. I mean, I'm not a Thatcherist, but with the advent of Thatcherism was the growth of capitalism. And suddenly there was an influx of wealth. And that started to change the character and the nature of the place, I think. 
I was going to say, obviously, I know the history of Liverpool, but going there as a visitor now, it's one of the most vibrant, amazing cities in the UK. Yeah. I think it's a fabulous place. And it is so interesting to think about how in such a short space of time, really, yeah. it's just completely changed its character. Yeah, completely. And when you go there today, it is a totally different proposition from what it was. But that's partly due to you know, the change in uh, kind of economic fortunes. It's partly to do with investment. It's partly to do with the advance of kind of populations across Britain. So, you know, there are complex reasons for it, I think. But it very definitely is different. And of course, society's moved on a bit. And, you know, we embrace our kind of mixed cultural heritage much more than we did. You know, we, we seem to be a much more forgiving society, a bit more accommodating. You know, the, the influences kind of stretch across the country into different cities and uh, yeah. communities. Absolutely. Did you read much as a child or were you kind of more outdoorsy? What was your focus when you were growing up? I read whenever I could and my focus was more <laughs> in the libraries or, <laughs> you know, with my nose in a book. And I think that was partly to do with wanting to escape the environment. So we've got, you know, when you're a child and what you see around you is kind of inflected with deprivation or hostility or violence or whatever else is going on then you know there's for me there was quite a strong drive to try and climb out of it mm. in any way I could and reading was the first mechanism I suppose a kind of coping strategy that I had which could bring me out of those conditions and make me you know be sitting on a flying chair somewhere <laughs> or in a, speaking to talking lions and all of that stuff exactly right. yeah. <laughs> what was the first book that kind of really impacted you as a child well, I do remember the, you know, the Enid Blyton type books very well. Not so much for the story or, you know, the, the plots and the characters, but more for what it brought you in terms of atmosphere. It kind of carried you into places that, you know, for me as a working class child, I'd never seen before. So because, you know, you open Enid Blyton, she sets her books kind of in the countryside for a start, which I'd never really seen. But you were aware existed in real life. You know, these were real places. It wasn't like being in a fairy castle. You know, these were real parts of Britain. So it felt accessible, but they were things that we hadn't experienced. So you could you read about five children having an, an adventure on, you know, the bank of a river or, you know, stealing a rowing boat and, you know, going off to a cave somewhere. And it, and it felt real mm-hmm. and, you know, it didn't require too much of a, um, leap in imagination <laughs> to get you there you didn't have to believe in you know flying carpets for that to be true and so, so I remember those stories and they had an impact on me I think in terms of escapism it was the first time I felt that you could escape your immediate environment just by opening a book and you could be transported you know within seconds oh I know exactly what you mean to this day whenever I go into a room that's got panelling I knock on it to see if there's a secret tunnel because I'm so sure that I'll find one. <laughs> and so you said you went to a state comprehensive school. And so were you one of those children that, that started reading quite a lot as a child, then it kind of petered out when you're a teenager and picked it up again? Or have you always read? No, that's been a fairly consistent theme, I think, throughout my childhood. I've always read something. And that was that's you know, partly for the reasons um, I've said. But also we were encouraged quite a lot to read. Mm-hmm by our parents. Um, My father wasn't a reader. My father couldn't read or write English, but he instinctively understood that it was such an important part of kind of our education 
on an individual and personal level as well as you know in a kind of more kind of global level he understood the importance of it and would insist encourage cajole persuade <laughs> us to read at every given opportunity um so yeah because of course your parents were immigrants weren't they when did they come to the uk well dad came earlier so he came first in the kind of 50s and then mum in the 60s so they were used to poverty because they came from poverty and they came from a different kind of poverty the, the, the poverty there wasn't really in terms of you know, kind of the surroundings or the technologies or whatever else. You know, the, the poverties there were measured in terms of food and con- you know, the things that could keep you alive. So when they came, you know, they didn't see themselves as people in poverty. They saw themselves as people who'd moved through poverty and into affluence. Mm. But at the same time, you know, once you once you've arrived and you're there in the sixties and you see that there is it's such a high cost of living and how important it is to work and how tenuous your grip on survival is. Then, you know, the work ethic kicks in and their work ethic kicked in. And, you know, they understood that the way to advancement was education. And in Pakistan, of course, there was no free education. You couldn't really get that. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, it was there laid out. And so, you know, what a waste it would be for a child or for children of theirs to not fully to take advantage of the education that was offered on a plate mm. um, for them, you know, much to their delight and surprise. Something that we, I think, a lot of people take for granted in the UK, isn't it? So you continued your education. You went on to Kingston University. Yeah. Um, and then studied for the bar at the Inns of Court. Yeah. So at that time, the only way you could be a barrister was to go to the Inns of Court School of Law, which was a law school for the bar and I think it's a kind of combination of the four inns so Middle Temple Inner Temple Lincoln's Inn and Gray's Inn I think together helped form the school so I think that's its background but it was the only place you could go now you can do your bar exams you know in many different places but but back then you had to be in London you had to be at the inns of court school of law and um yes that's where I was right for the bar there and for the first time came into contact with you know a totally different set of people (laughs) from the people I'd been used to certainly from the people I'd grown up with because you know the bar then and now to a large extent was populated by people with enormous amounts of privilege you know the Oxbridge crowd was there sure and there were those you know who like me weren't from privilege but there were quite a lot of people who were whose lives were had been mapped out to some extent for them and they found themselves there you know enjoying the next step of their life. But for me, it was a kind of eye-opener. I'd gone then. It felt like I was in kind of alien territory. Nothing <laughs> nothing was familiar. The people weren't familiar. The things they spoke about weren't familiar. The ease with which they moved through that world was, you know, a wonder to me. Mm. Yes, I can imagine. I always feel like that whenever I go. We're just down the road from Oxford. And whenever I go in and wander around the colleges, because obviously there's beautiful grounds, I do see that with a lot of the students. I think you can definitely see the ones that have kind of, there's always been an expectation that they were going to end up there. Whereas there's others that definitely didn't think they would. And they're relishing every minute. So you got a pupillage in London after passing the bar. Um, But before you did that, I understand you worked in the leather industry. (laughs) What was that about? That is true. So um, I have cousins who, in fact, one of them wanted to study for the bar and I think did and then dropped out and then 
you know, because he had a family to support, he went into textile business and the textile company that he worked for had a part of the business which sold leather skin and imported and exported skin. And they took over that part of the business and in the end they bought it out. And so there they were in the mid-80s into the 90s with this leather business where they were importing and exporting skin across the world. So, yeah, and they said to me one summer, you know, why don't you come and work with us, you know, have a look and see whether you enjoy it. And I did. (laughs) I did work in their warehouse in London. And, yeah, it was an eye-opener. You know, by the end of it, I could tell you what your handbag was made of at 30 paces. And I'll probably tell you what, not not just which animal it came from, but which factory it came from and what the finish was. (laughs) (laughs) Never think about that. (laughs) That's fantastic. I just love you had that interlude between you know the bar and the pupillage. And then, of course, so you went and you had your pupillage and you qualified as a barrister. And you've been practising now for almost 30 years, I understand. That's right, yeah. This is my 30th year. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> now, you're probably going to laugh at this because I actually have friends that are barristers, and so I know it's probably not true. But I always think that a barrister's life from the outside looks terribly exciting and very dramatic and, and and just like you know lots going on I mean what's it actually really like working as a barrister okay so I think it partly depends on which side of the bar you're talking about and I'm on kind of both sides so I've got experience of both so if you're at the criminal bar then your life tends to be Friday night a set of papers for Monday you spend the whole weekend preparing it whether you're defending or whether you're prosecuting and you usually do both get to court speak to your client or whatever it is make sure your witnesses are there spend half a day waiting to get on then either do get on or don't get on and if you get on you do your trial but at the end of that day you're sent home with more work to do whether you're preparing interviews or writing arguments or whatever and then you're up till midnight doing that come back the next day same again and then when you finally finish your trial or usually before you finish your trial you've got the clerks on the phone getting you your next job so your next gig is the next day and it's in some other court and, and sometimes what, what they'll do is if you're starting at 10 o'clock they'll say oh there's a hearing in your court at 9 30 can you cover it <laughs> so you'll have to step out and do that hearing and then come back and then all of that you know really hard work for almost no proper remuneration because 90 percent of it's legal aid legal aid rates are through the floor They've been cut year on year for decades. And so, you know, quite a lot of work that you're doing is for free. If you had to measure it according to your hourly rate, for most criminal practitioners, you'd be way below minimum wage Hmm. for the hours that they do. So, yeah, there's no glamour in it. It can be fun. (laughs) It's deft. You know, you're in a courtroom, you've got a jury, you've got, you know, witnesses to cross-examine. It's There's high drama, there's high tension, there's loads of stories. It's... You know, your colleagues are fantastically interesting and fun. And all of that, you know, their life, kind of the work is fantastic. You know, there's no job like it, but you're doing quite a lot of it for nothing. Hmm. Yeah, see, the insight into what it's actually like, you know. <laughs> you, you read these books, you watch the TV and you think, oh, goodness, that looks very exciting. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a lot of hard work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely more work than fun. Yes. Well, these days you live in southeast London yes. with your wife and your daughters. Um, obviously, we've had a bit of a bonkers couple of years. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of cautious, optimistic. It's looking more and more positive that we might actually be coming out to some resemblance of normality now. Famous yeah. last words. Um, <laughs> how has the last two years been for you and, and your family? 
Well, we've been very lucky. So um, touching wood, none of us have had the COVID. <laughs> and again, touching wood, nobody that we know has suffered very badly from it um, if they've had it. So you know, to that extent, we've been very fortunate. We've also been fortunate because we've had the space to be able to work from home. We had just started, in fact, having the loft converted anyway, uh, just before the whole of the pandemic hit, which meant that once it was fully underway, we had somewhere we could put a desk and sit down and work from home. So we had space. So we were fortunate for that reason. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we've kind of been counting our blessings. We, you know, we've been able to work together in the same room happily. We haven't killed each other. You know, it's, and, you know, we've been able to spend more time, not just with each other, but with our children mm-hmm. that we probably otherwise wouldn't have had time to do. So, yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's crazy. You can't go out. It makes you feel slightly suspicious of ordinary things, you know, suspicious of the bus. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> In the hall, you know, a cafe, you know, things that you would never think that you'd... <laughs> Question: twi- You know, a door handle, you know, can fill you with dread. <laughs> it's uh, so strange, isn't it? <laughs> which is, you know, it is totally, <laughs> totally mad. You know, but it's had its ups, you know, as well as its downs. And um, you know, we'll all remember the times when you know the first six weeks felt like it might be fun, and we were all doing Joe Wicks and you know having picnics in the park. You know, expecting it all to be over within six weeks. Yeah, you know the kind of longest count, but two years on, yeah, it's beginning to take its toll, and it, and it's sometimes it is quite nice to go in to chambers or going to court and just kind of break up the day a bit. But um, yeah, we've been lucky. I'm glad to hear it. I've been chatting to an awful lot of people through the last couple of years, and um, I've really found that in terms of books and reading, some people have really found solace in it during COVID, and others have really struggled to read because there's been a lot going on in their mind. Which camp did you fall in? A lot of my reading now is or are books that I've been given to read, <laughs> uh, which I didn't know this was a thing until I was lucky enough to have the first book published. But what, what happens, I mean, everybody's already aware of this, but what happens is that other publishers send you books, yeah. you know, without you asking, they'll send you a book every week and, you know, they want you to read it and say whether you liked it, which is, you know, incredible. To be able to write a book is, you know, privilege enough, but then to be sent free books <laughs> before anybody else has read them, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's wild. But it does mean you end up reading books that you would never, you know, a lot of those books I would never have picked up, which, you know, has its positives as well as its negatives. Yeah. You get introduced to worlds you'd never have come across. But on the other hand, you're reading a lot of stuff you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe don't put the comments out for those ones. Um, <laughs> and what was the last book you read? So the last book I finished was a book by Gillian McAllister called Wrong Place, Wrong Time, which is one of those advanced uh, reading copies. But this was one of the ones I really liked. It does everything you want that book to do. It's got a great premise. It is slightly high concepty, but not too bonkers. If I said it was a kind of cross between Groundhog Day and something else, you, you, you'll kind of get the feeling. But it's, it's got an unusual twist on that. And, um, yeah, the characters are great. The plotting is very tight. It's just a brilliantly conceived and executed book. Excellent. Have to keep an eye out for that one then. Yeah, you'll enjoy it. Yeah, you will. I'm a big fan of all kind of crime thriller books. So anything that's got a bit of a twist also always gets my attention. 
So obviously, alongside working as a barrister, you've clearly found time to write some books, which is uh, pretty amazing, given what you just said about your working week. Your first book, You Don't Know Me, was published in 2017, and it's gone on to be adapted for television that came out in December last year, which, by the way, was amazing, that adaptation. (laughs) I I binge-watched it. I was very, very excited when I knew I was going to speak to you, and I was like, oh, my goodness, he's the creator of that amazing, amazing story. (laughs) How involved were you with the adaptation? I'm always fascinated to hear about this. Well, I was made... I suppose, executive producer is what they put on the titles. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered that as well. <laughs> In terms of what it actually meant on the ground for me was that Sir Tom Edge wrote the script. Yeah. Uh, and Tom Edge, as you'll notice, all of those things like The Crown and did the J.K. Rowling stuff, you know, The Cuckoo's Calling and adapted all of those and he did vigil and he's kind of taking over the world yeah so if they were sent to me but they weren't sent to me for approval or for my advice (laughs) (laughs) they were sent to me i think just to look at but i was able to speak to him and i did have conversations with him and, and he would phone up and say look i'm writing a court scene or i've written this court scene can you just tell me whether this rings true and so I did have involvement to that extent and, you know, I wouldn't rewrite the court scenes, but I'd have conversations with him. And, you know, he's he's the cleverest man in the world because he will pick up things, you know, without you having to repeat a thing, you know, quite kind of technical things. He just gets because he's so clever. And then, of course, I was speaking to the producers themselves and they would talk to me about the changes that they wanted to make. And I've always taken the view that um, sometimes producers are nervous about writers because they're wondering, you know, how are they going to take this adaptation when it's changed or, you know, if it's changed too much? Um, I've always taken the view, well, first of all, they've paid for the right to make it. Yeah. So it's theirs. Secondly, I wouldn't be able to do anything about it anyway, <laughs> even <laughs> if I was angry. Uh, in this case, actually, they did a fantastic, absolutely amazing job. So, you know, I was, I was really thrilled. But the third thing is it's a different art form. And I heard... I think Mick Heron put it, I think, beautifully when he said, when you write a book, one of the first questions people ask you is, when is it going to be made into a TV or is it going to be made into a film? And he said, you never ask that of any other artist. You would never say to a person who's done a painting, when's it going to be made into a statue? Or (laughs) It's just (laughs) the thing that would never occur to anyone. But they always ask it about a book. And I think that's very insightful because it tells you that they are you know a totally different experiential bit of art and you know the two things are different Mm -hmm. so I didn't mind at all but it was nice to you know to be involved by the production team and you know I got to meet the cast and I got invited on to set and they kind of walked me around the costume and the set makers and you know I watched a scene being filmed I met the director I'd have you know conversations with the director about various things so yeah, you know, I was I was very lucky, privileged, in fact, to um, have had the kind of level of involvement I did. You know, I was very lucky. It must be very strange to see the world that you've created there in front of you and meet the people that are representing your characters. Oh, it was totally surreal because I, you know, I'd invented this character in my head, and then one day, three, four, five years later, you know, I'm shaking hands with her or him. Yeah. <laughs> And she's saying, hi, I'm playing Kyra, or hi, I'm playing Sam. <laughs> and then you listen to them speaking some of your words. That's weird, because then now they've become, it's almost like um, 
not quite Pinocchio, but you've created a thing which isn't real, and then suddenly there it is in flesh and blood. It's yeah, it's it's bonkers. I love the analogy. That's great. <laughs> so that was your first book that came out in 2017. Your latest book, I Know What I Saw, came out last year in hardback and is coming out in paperback this year. So there was a bit of a gap between the two. How did you find the process of writing the second book? Because obviously the first book you write and there's no real expectation, but because it had done so well, did you feel a certain amount of pressure with the second book? I did feel pressure. Um, mm-hmm. Part of that pressure was if it was a series, so if it was a returnable character, then... I think I would have felt, well, I could just do another plot and, you know, use all the same characters who I might have enjoyed communing with on the page. And, you know, this this would have been fine. But because it was a standalone, I had to do another book, which was totally different. And it had to be totally different. So I couldn't do another, you know, I'm on trial for something else. No. <laughs> and, and, and this is my story. You know, that was some of You Don't Know Me was written in kind of colloquial language. Mm-hmm. the other books aren't. So there was a switch in terms of the language that was used. Yeah, it was difficult. And not least of all, because <laughs> some of the people I spoke to were telling me, oh, by the way, number two is going to be really hard. <laughs> and I would say to them, no, no, it's fine. I've written quite a lot of it. It's fine. And they would say, no, 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 number two is, is always really tough. <laughs> and they were right. They were right. Because as you say, you have the whole of your life to write number one. Mm-hmm. Well, then you have not all of your life. Yeah. <laughs> the people are looking out for it. I think there's a, some great messages in the book, particularly about how society kind of filters out people that aren't necessarily living their best life. The fact that your protagonist was a successful banker and then he ended up homeless and therefore his opinions or what he's seen isn't taken as it should have been. And it probably would have been taken very differently had he still been working in the bank. Where did that idea come from? Well, the character, in fact, as it happens, when I was 16 in Liverpool, I would spend quite a lot of my time in the local library. And there was a man who used to come there, and he was probably in his 30s then. He was full beard, living on the streets, kind of matted beard and dirty clothes. And and he would come into the library, and particularly on wet days. And I thought to shelter from pouring rain or the icy conditions... And whenever I walked past him, he'd be in the kind of lounging area, reading this quite dense kind of philosophical material, or he'd be reading The New Scientist or whatever it was. And he was really kind of exceptionally bright. And at one point, he offered me books. He said, oh, do, you want, <laughs> do you want to buy a French book or a French-English dictionary? And I was, because he saw that I was studying French, and I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then he would come up with all these books. And um, sell them to me. And it never once occurred to me that he's homeless. Is he getting the books from the library that I'm in? (laughs) 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 But he wasn't. He had a friend who was storing his stuff. And um, anyway, I was seen talking to him by a teacher who said, oh, I gather you've met such and such. And I said, yeah, what's going on with him? And he went, oh, he was one of our brightest students. Then he went to university, he was at I think, Oxford, Cambridge, and he ended up working for, I think, ICI. He was a real high flyer. And then he came back one day, you know, kind of destitute, and nobody really knows what happened to him in those 10 years. And that kind of stuck with me. And what also stuck with me is what I remember talking to him once and <laughs> at 16 and saying to him, but you could be rich. <laughs> <laughs> Why haven't you got a job? You could be rich. And he just said, 
Look, I've done my bit. I've done my bit for society. That's me done. I don't have to do anything else. And I didn't understand it then. And it took me years to understand exactly what he meant. And I think really it took the writing of the book for me to work out what he meant. Mm -hmm. And part of it was that there's an expectation about conforming to society, which is there and which you have to have a kind of superpower to be able to look through it Mm -hmm. and to put yourself outside those requirements and um, to become truly independent of those requirements. And he'd managed to do it. And I don't think very many people are. I'm I'm certainly not. Mm. You know, I can't stand apart from society and be free of their influences, but he somehow could. I was happy with it. That's so interesting. There was somebody that you met when you were 16 that influenced you with that book. It's interesting because it just really made me think about the whole kind of concept of what we see in society. And bizarrely, I was listening to an interview with Richard Osman yesterday, and he was talking about the reason why he made his lead characters in his books old people is because he was like, well, they'll never suspect anybody that's old. Like, you know, it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? He he actually commented on that. It's like how we as a society treat people as they get older. So there's all these different facets to it. Yeah. In fact, I think I was listening to an interview where Richard Osman was saying the same thing, which was that you know, we have a whole generation of older people who aren't represented in culture, mm. you know, but they had not just lives, but miraculously full and you know, productive and intelligent. And our scientists and our surgeons and our spies and whatever, they don't disappear at 60 when they retire. They're still there. Yeah. <laughs> they're still there, but they're not reflected in culture. We don't see them in our art or in our TV or in our books. And yeah, he did a very, I think, smart and compassionate thing by writing it's funny actually because um in our shop so we our shops in abingdon we have like, a huge amount of local customers that come in all the time and every now and again we'll get a snippet of information from some of our elderly customers about what they've done in their life and you know you're meeting this person who's quite quiet quite mild-mannered and then you suddenly find out they've done something completely bonkers and it, it's i just oh it's one of my favorite bits of the job finding <laughs> yeah. out what people have done but it's just it's something i never really considered before i had the shop that would be part of it so it's everywhere isn't it in terms of your writing are you a planner or are you someone that kind of lets the story evolve as you write it i've tried to plan a book before and it's never worked because my mind isn't good enough to be able to think of all of the moving parts and so when i've done that it's never worked so because what, what will happen is i'll say these two people meet and then this happens. And then I'm writing the meeting and the dialogue. And then they say something unexpected, but more realistic. Mm-hmm. And then I think, well, this can't happen now because of this conversation <laughs> they've had where they've said the opposite from the thing I've planned for them. And so in the end, what I tend to have is a kind of skeleton of a structure. So I know the kind of big plot points and the headlines, the signposts I need to reach. But kind of internally, what happens in them, you know, evolves you know, through the characters and what they say are the things which inform the development. I love that. It's like the characters just come to life. I find it so fascinating talking to authors. I've heard people say this before. Um, I started writing properly, and I didn't really know what they were talking about. It didn't really sound that honest. It did sound a bit disingenuous where people would say, "Oh, the characters are real to me," but they are real in a different way for me. In that. It's through their dialogue, through the things that they say and think, which have to be realistic to be able to pass muster, that they come to life and kind of their worlds come to life because their decisions, you can see their decisions happening and then you've got to cater for those decisions by opening the worlds up. Fascinating. So in addition to your book that's coming out in paperback 
in April, you've got another novel due out in the summer. Yeah. And you recently contributed to a crime anthology, which contained 25 stories, I think, from different authors. Yes. How did that come about? Well, I was contacted by uh, Vasim Khan and Maxim Jakubowski, who just asked me whether I'd be interested in it. And I just kind of leapt at the chance of being able to do it. And I had the story kind of in my head and I wanted to play with it and to see whether you know I could use it. And it, it was a good place for it, I think. Mm. There wasn't enough in it for a full-length novel, but I didn't want to abandon it altogether because it involves a kind of sociopath, <laughs> which, you know, there are challenges in writing. I've realised as I, when I was trying to write the full novel. And one of them is, if you're writing it from the perspective of a psychopath or a sociopath, as I was doing, because they have these particular characteristics, one of them is they have quite shallow effect. It's quite difficult for you as a reader to bond with the character mm-hmm. because they, they don't have that warmth. And so you end up not caring as much about the character <laughs> as you as the writer want the reader to do. Yeah. So it became very difficult. And, and in the end, I had to abandon the idea of it as a full-length novel. But as a short story, I think there was just there's enough there, I think, to, to I hope... <laughs> to carry it i'm looking forward to seeing that book actually it's there's some great authors well i'm just shocked at <laughs> i'm kind of wondering whether they put my name on it by accident when I'm reading, <laughs> when I'm reading. who else is on there and then it just ends casually with walter mosley and i think because it's incredible really that i found myself accidentally on there so if it was an accident it's a happy accident and i hope many more such accidents <laughs> come <laughs> Go your way. So that's the perfect crime that's just recently come out. I have a theory with anyone that reads that they would have a book that has had quite a significant impact on them. And that could be professionally, it could be personally. Um, Some people agree with this theory. It's funny you mentioned Mick Heron earlier on. I interviewed him recently and he absolutely did not agree with the theory. But um, (laughs) because his view is that a lot of influenced him. But I'm always interested in asking people uh, whether they've got a book like that. And if so, what is it? Yeah, well, I fall into the category of, yes, there is a book for me which uh, influenced me, I think, in more than one way and in more than one aspect of my life, and that's To Kill a Mockingbird. Because it, in a way, it influenced the professional career as a barrister because of the, you know what it's dealing with, which is this kind of heavy themes of injustice. And you've got Atticus Finch there as the uber role model <laughs> for all defence lawyers that, you know, they're all models that nobody can quite ever live up to. But, you know, a beautiful character. But also the writing, because um, I think Harper Lee did something kind of magical, or, you know, a combination of Harper Lee and her editor. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because I read the kind of, what I won't call the prequel, but the, was it The Night Watchman? But the kind of posthumous book that was released. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't a patch on To Kill a Mockingbird. They, they were in two different star systems almost they were so different but she did something magical with to kill a mockingbird and i think the magic is in the opposites that run through it so you've got these really serious adult themes running through this book not just morality and justice and all of that and racism and tolerance and intolerance but it's being driven through the voice of a young girl Mm-hmm. which creates its own kind of slightly magical tension. So you've got not just it being expressed in her voice, the horror of what she's describing, being told in the voice of an innocent child, but also 
through her eyes. We see life through her eyes and through, and it's her interpretations that we are witness to. And then we witness her growing as she travels through the book and um, experiences everything and we see the turning points. So it's the way I think that Harper Lee does this. You know, there's an opposite everywhere. So it's a counterfoil to Atticus. The, you know, justice is met with injustice, truth with lie. You know, and then there's a kind of horror story running through it with <laughs> Boo Radley. And yeah, you know, it's got everything. I can't think of a thing that it hasn't got and a theme that it doesn't comment on. It, it just does it so beautifully. And, you know, in a fictitious town, which is painted with such rich colours, it's just, I think it's a phenomenon. And, that, you know, it's a book which can never be repeated in a way. It's a one-off. Definitely had an impact on you. Just before we finish up, I've mentioned your book that's coming out in the summer. So I guess that's probably keeping you busy preparing for that. But what else are you working on at the moment? So um, <laughs> I've started the next one and I'm about halfway to two thirds through it. All I said was true, which is coming out in the summer, is a book about, I suppose, freedom of choice. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, it's something I've always wondered about, you know, whether we do truly have free will. You know, there's not just a kind of floaty hippie view, but founded in science and in physics. And there are those physicists or quantum physicists or metaphysicists who say there is no such thing as free will. It's just an illusion and everything is cause and effect. And what we do is because of who we are and the choices that we make are as a result of who we are, but we can't choose who we are mm-hmm. and we can't choose what to think. We don't make those choices. And so we're living in a world where free will is a comforting illusion mm. that we have to live alongside. So I was trying to explore that in all I said was true. And so the next one explores a similar theme, but it deals with the consequences of choice if there is choice and how that and where that leaves us. Because it always, you know, I suppose, you know, we've all heard that about the ripple effect or the butterfly effect where one thing leads to the next and into the next and into the next. And that's always made me wonder about everybody's circumstances. And it's something I see in the job a lot whenever I'm talking to clients who are pleading guilty you know, to offences. I might ask them what it was that led them to this particular impasse. And there's always a story. Mm. Nobody has ever come in to a conference and said, oh, well, I just decided to deal drugs or I just decided to buy a fire. <laughs> Nobody's ever done that. It's always been, well, when I was six, this happened. Mm. And when I was eight, this happened. When I was 10, this And then you can see it kind of unravelling inevitably towards this conclusion. And you end up, on, I end up wondering, you know, in terms of moral responsibility, where that line lies when that thread, which is pulling on moral responsibility travel so far back in the past mm-hmm. to a point that you can't control. So it's almost like a stone which sets off a kind of cascade of other stones. Mm. But by then you're just a passenger in your own life, in a way, yeah. waiting for the things to happen. God, that's fascinating. But the two books, what I said was true in the one you're working on, they're standalone. Yeah, yeah, they are standalone. I've thought about the idea of writing a series and I'm still toying with the idea of writing a series which might be a courtroom drama with a returning lawyer or whatever, but I haven't finally committed to the idea of it because I like the thought of playing with new characters and hearing what they say rather than having to go back to the same ones. Yeah. But that's not to say I don't enjoy reading you know, returnable characters. I do. 
It's quite nice to see somebody again. It's quite nice to see meet old friends as well as new ones. Mm. So watch the space. That may happen. It may not. <laughs> well, Imran, it's been absolutely lovely chatting to you today. It's been so fascinating hearing about your background and, and your work and all of the books that are going to be out in the ether at some point. But um, right. thank you so much for chatting to me today. No, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.